I don't know if it's my place to say solid cost of our politics fashion. Maybe it is. Honestly, I would, I don't know. It's Balkan politics, man. It's what they do. <laughs> Kurti just went full on Balkan. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's true, but I don't know if I can say it. Like, literally don't. podcast my name is still you and healy and with me is as i always say my very good friend gabriel hengren gabriel how are you doing hi you and yeah i'm still gabriel i'm still here there's not much to update on since since we last uh, recorded a podcast in terms of uh my personal situation but um luckily for us a lot has happened in the outside world um, of european politics so that's exciting so i've been following that yeah, somewhere to escape to in the midst of 2021, which is starting out to be a, a slow year, let's say the least, in terms of life and progress uh, of most of us because of the continuing and ongoing pandemic. But that's just how it's going to have to be. But this episode, my friends, is going to bring you right back into the all the excitement of European politics. We've got Dr. Christian Frommelt, the director of the Liechtenstein Institute, to come and take a deep dive with us into one of the less covered elections in Europe this year. And we're also joined by our colleague Otto Kristin Vanajur, who gives us the latest update from Estonia. And we are, of course, haunted by the spectre of Matthew Nicholson, who's with us to travel back in time to 1906 and the UK general election of that year in History Corner. But first, like always, let's get those headlines from around the continent. Gabriel. And there are some really juicy ones. Like you said, if most of us have, you know, decided to, you know, follow the rules, stay in, keep calm, you know, focus on uh, on self-care, <laughs> that's not been the case uh, for most European politicians this uh, this past month, to put it lightly. So starting with Italy, where um, in the last episode we did, um, for all of you, we brought you the news of Italia Viva's withdrawal from the uh, Italian governing coalition. This week we can give you um, the update that the Italian Prime Minister um, Giuseppe Conte uh, has resigned. Um, despite narrowly surviving a vote of confidence in the national parliament last week. Um, so with 200 billion euros um, of uh, recovery money to spend and a coronavirus pandemic that has sadly taken 85,000 Italian lives, which is obviously uh, immensely tragic, um, surviving the vote of confidence was apparently still not enough for Conte um, as his government after that was left neutered. So the question now is, you know, is this the end? Uh, for this um, man who until relatively uh, recently was an unknown politician uh, before taking on the role um, of prime minister. Uh, this is very hard to say um, at, um, at this moment. However, many have expressed support for a, a third Conte cabinet. For example, the center-left Democratic Party leader, Nicola Singaretti, called for Conte to return to lead a pro-European government, whereas others have called for a government of national unity of sorts made of both left and right-wing parties uh, for the remainder of the pandemic to sort of uh, take the focus from party politics to obviously the immense policy 
um, issues across health, economy, and everything we've been talking about this past year that's facing Italy. Luigi Di Maio of the Five Star Movement has also expressed uh, support for Conte remaining prime minister. So uh, he's not completely out of it yet. But as is custom, Conte will remain in power as a caretaker uh, for the moment as negotiations for a new government begin. Uh, and believe it or not, many analysts suggest that Silvio Berlusconi's conservative Fratelli d'Italia or smaller left-wing voices with the most likely parties to join the coalition. So we might see the return of Berlusconi. So if negotiations fail, however, uh, we could have yet another major European election um, later on in 2021. Um, and looking at Italy and its history, um, I would not um, be too shocked um, about that. I don't know about you, Ewan. Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised if we found out it was the entire nation of Italy was a conspiracy designed by someone who likes counting elections. Now I'm going to take you from one government crisis to another. Since our last recording, the Dutch government, led by Mark Rutte, has resigned. Um, Liberal D66, centre-right CU and centre-right CDA have all uh, been pressuring Rutte and his party, the VVD, to resign, something Rutte had refused for a long time until he resigned on Friday the 15th January. So the question on everyone's lips, of course, is why did Rutter change his mind? One reason is there is actually some historic precedent for resignations in this area, with Ludovic Ascher, the former PVDA leader, centre-left party, um, having resigned and left politics over his role in a benefits scandal when he was the Minister of Social Affairs from 2012 to 2017 in the previous Rutter government, the Rutter II government. Furthermore, the so-called Ruta Doctrine, which basically allowed Parliament to be misinformed about the scandal, which encouraged civil servants to hide information, has come under a lot of scrutiny over the last fortnight, something which tied the scandal as a whole to not just his government or the VVD, but to Ruta personally. Despite the resignation, however, his voting base doesn't seem to care. VVD remain stable in the polls, even though, according to a poll by the company Pyle, uh, 45% of Dutch voters also wanted to see Rutte resigning from his role as leader of the VVD over this scandal. This paints a picture of a clearly polarised nation ahead of the scheduled parliamentary elections on the 17th of March. So lots to play for and lots could go wrong for Mr Rutte in the coming days. Definitely. But at the same time, I feel like the that date of the election in March is um, is sort of saving him for now let's see what he can pull out between now and then who knows um he's a survivor of sorts absolutely so finally our third story uh, is uh, estonia and that's the third government crisis of january 2021 the trifecta is complete so i'll go into this um in more detail with um Otto, as Ewan said at the at the top of the episode, but to give you sort of the basic lowdown, Estonia has a new prime minister following a corruption scandal um, in the country uh, tied to uh, real estate development in Tallinn, um, which forced the previous cabinet led by centre party leader Juli Ratas to resign. Uh, so the centre party um, is uh, a liberal party belonging to the Renew Europe group, um, as thus the Reform Party. Um, whose leader, Kaya Kalas, um, has ascended to the position of prime minister as of the 26th of January, so the day before this recording, uh, making her the country's first female prime minister, um, which has got a lot of attention, is obviously a big step um, in terms of gender equity in Estonian politics. She's also put forward a very uh, balanced um, cabinet, together with the centre party, actually, who's gone from being 
sort of the leader uh, in the previous coalition governments and now being a minor partner. So to hear more about this, it's all a bit um, confusing, to be honest. Um, I'm very happy to, to, to bring you all Otto's expertise in this area. He'll be dialing in uh, straight from the belly of the beast, Tallinn. I love a good, I love a good cabinet reshuffle. Oh, yeah. something oh. incredibly political nerdy about it, but gosh, the the drama of a, a cabinet reshuffle, especially after a scandal, just you really can't get much better than that. It's like Christmas, Christmas. No, no, agreed. And moving from the east of the EU to the west, we're going to take you to Portugal, where the president and head of state was elected last week. Within the Portuguese semi-presidential system, the president of the republic uh, has the role of externally representing the country in diplomatic occasions, nominating the prime minister formally, being the supreme commander of the armed forces, guaranteeing and regulating the constitutional and democratic functions of the political institutions of the country, and has the power to drop the so-called atomic bomb, if necessary, that is to dissolve parliament. While the first round victory of the highly popular and charismatic centre-right incumbent candidate, Marcelo Rebelo de Souza, who's supported by uh, political parties affiliated to the European People's Party, also by the centre-left Socialist Party, was, was not a surprise. His election was not a surprise. He ended up achieving 60.7% of the vote, a growth of 8% comparative to his first term result. The race for second place turned out to be a closer one than we originally expected, though, and that's where the interest lies in this race. So the independent centre-left candidate, Ana Gomes, supported by the Animal Welfare Party, PAM, and the eco-socialist and EU Federalist Party, Livre, while non-officially also supported by the left-wing factions of the Socialist Party and its youth wing, attained roughly a one percentage point advantage over right-wing and controversial leader and founder of Chega, Andre Ventura. Factors such as the division of the left-wing electorate between the three candidates and Ventura's overperformance in rural and interior areas, traditionally dominated by the left-wing coalition CDU, composed by the Portuguese Communist Party and the Ecologist Party, the Greens, are said to have basically been the reason why we saw the main centre-left candidates struggle. The candidates from the left aisle were basically the losers all around in this election, with both candidates together receiving less than the candidate in third place. And that is actually the second time that the left bloc's candidate, Marisa Matias, has run for president, losing more than 300,000 voters relative to her first try. While polls predicted that she would get fourth place, the CD EU-supported candidate Jao Ferreira ended up surpassing her low results. Nonetheless, Ferreira suffered a major loss of support in Alentejo, which is a historically communist region, high support for the left bloc. And this region was lost to none other than the Chega candidate Andre Ventura. It's a bit of a realignment going on there in eastern Portugal. Liberal candidate Diego Mayan managed to gain 3.2% for the second to last place, while the last place was taken by Vitorino Silva, commonly known as Tito Dorantz, who uh, represents a protest vote. To sum up, the, the presidential election ran pretty much as everyone expected it to go. But the name recognition the candidates and their parties got will have a big influence on um, how these parties do in the long run. So, of course... Keep an eye on Portugal, always really interesting politics um, going on, especially particularly credible result for Chega, the right-wing party there. So now on to Kosovo. Uh, and in the script here, I read election and legal stuff. So let's go. The leader of LVV in Kosovo and the former prime minister, Albin Kurti, is currently barred from running for parliament in the upcoming parliamentary elections of uh, February 14th. 
This is despite his party running well ahead in the polls, sort of with the biggest electoral uncertainty currently being whether they would manage to obtain more than 50% of the vote. The court's decision to bar Kurti and other politicians was very much expected. Since Kosovo's law on general elections deems people who have been found guilty of a criminal offense in the last three years ineligible to stand for members of parliament. So in this case, Kurti's crime was um, quite spectacularly setting off a tear gas canister in parliament as part of a protest against a border deal with neighboring Montenegro and an agreement with um, Serbia, which obviously is very much detested by, by most uh, Kosovars, as I'm sure you will all know for uh, for historical reasons. Uh, so legal issues notwithstanding, he is still expected to be the next prime minister of Kosovo, even if he doesn't stand and gets elected in the parliamentary elections. Also quite important in this uh, obviously very um, colorful pre-election campaign, to put it um, diplomatically, is Curtis' alliance with um, the country's acting president, uh, Jose Osmani, was expected to be elected president after these elections too. So, of course, we'll keep you up to date with what goes on in this state in the Balkans that's obviously uh, partly recognized by quite a lot of countries at this point, but still uh, far from them all. So it's definitely uh, an interesting country to follow, sort of a young parliamentary democracy. So we'll definitely um, keep you posted on um, on the election campaign and uh, how that pans out. Absolutely. And in our final electoral news for this week, we have the news from the centre-right Christian Democratic Union's leadership race in Germany. Ooh. As we've been reporting in recent weeks, following the resignation of their previous leader in February last year, the CDU has come together to elect a new leader. So the three-way race culminated in a vote last week, in a race which saw first round and almost neck and neck between centrist Armin Laschet and right-wing candidate Friedrich Merz on 39 and 39% respectively. Norbert Rutgen was in third place and he was eliminated with most of his 224 delegate votes transferring to Laschet in the second round, resulting in a 53-47 victory for Armin Laschet. Laschet will take the reins of the party less than a year ahead of the national parliament elections. However, it still remains to be seen if he will actually be the candidate for chancellor for the CDU-CSU. That's the German head of government, if you didn't know. This decision is set to be made in the spring, um, where it will be between Laschet, who is currently the regional uh, prime minister of North Rhine-Westphalia in the northwest of Germany, versus Markus Söder who is the regional head of government in Bavaria in the southwest and is the leader of the CDU sister party, the CSU, who run on a joint ticket in national elections. So it'll be between one of those two people who'll be the next candidate for chancellor for the CDU, CSU, and the most likely next head of German government. And finally, we have to talk about Russia, uh, where the authoritarian regime of Vladimir Putin uh, made more than 3,000 arrests at protests across the country this week as thousands of citizens went out onto the streets to protest the arrest of Alexei Navalny. Uh, as you all will know at this point, because it's been everywhere, um, he's um, sort of a key leader of the opposition movement against the Putin regime. He returned to the country after receiving treatment in Berlin following the attempted poisoning. Protesters attended rallies in over 100 locations, and obviously, we've, there's been all these spectacular reports and images of very brave um, Russian um, 
democracy activists out in negative 50 degrees Celsius in some places in blizzards, including um, in Moscow, where there were 40,000 people um, out in the streets. These protests are some of the largest anti-government displays in almost a decade in Russia. Uh, so it's definitely something to pay attention to, and it will be very interesting to see uh, how the regime's treatment of um, Navalny and how um, the rest of the European countries um, react to this development will, will impact Russian politics. Um, obviously, the Putin regime has managed to <laughs> crush dissent plenty of times before, but who knows, this might be, um, might be the start to um, a different um, climate there. Absolutely. So obviously, follow us on social media for updates on everything and all news, politics in Europe. And stick around to this podcast for a jam-packed rest of the episode, talking to Otto about Estonia, talking to Christian about Liechtenstein, and all the way back to before the First World War with Matthew. With me now to discuss one of the large number of government crises we have been reporting on this past month is our colleague Otto Christian Vanayur, who's dialing in from Tallinn, Estonia, to, to talk about the events there. Hi, Otto. Hi, Gabriel. Hi. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, to discussing this in more detail with you. It's been some exciting few weeks in, in your country. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, well, the past year and a half or so that we've had this coalition has been rather exciting as well, but nothing happens like up until now. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of aspects, I guess, to touch on, but um, to sort of boil it down, like what we mentioned in our new section, Sony has a new prime minister since the 26th of January, so the day before we record this, Kaya Kalas of the Report Foreign Party. She is leading a government that's replacing one led by Yuri Ratas and his party, which is the Centre Party. Uh, so I thought we'd kick off just by uh, going through Yuri Ratas, his time in government, and the Centre Party, what's been their agenda over the, over the past few years and has it changed? The Centre itself has changed quite a lot since coming into power in 2016. Uh, centre before it was quite in the same position as many uh, other European parties existing in the cordon sanitaire. No party really wanted to cooperate with them due to the former leader who was seen as quite, um, how should I put it, uh, well, not really Western-leaning uh, in foreign policy, as well as cultivating kind of a uh, cult of personality around himself. Since then, Centre has become very clearly Western-aligned in its uh, foreign policy and well, in its saying uh, in what it says as well which has possibly slightly um, had a negative impact on their um, base support among the uh, uh, Russian-speaking population in uh, Idaviru and uh, Tallinn. But Centre itself, policy-wise, hasn't really changed that much, even during the uh, Savisar era, who was the previous chairman of Centre, had this um, policy of, uh, some might call it, kind of populism. Yeah. Uh, but 
it was centered around fighting social inequality as well as uh, increased state intervention in the economy and so on and so on. And I guess just for listeners who, who haven't followed Estonian politics, I guess there's been two cabinets led by Ratas, the first one uh, being more centrist, more moderate, and then the more recent one where lots of attention has been put on the fact that they uh, looped in Ekre, which um, is very much sort of a, a populist, right-wing, very conservative party. Uh, and that's the sort of coalition that's now crumbled. Um, so just quickly, um, on the cause of the collapse of the Ratas government, it's all down to this Porto-Franco corruption case. Mm-hmm. Can you just summarize it very quickly? Uh, what, what happened there? And is it really just like a one-time scandal or has it been framed more as a, a part of a bigger issue um, surrounding the center party or, or the ruling government that's just uh, resigned? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, center has had uh, financial problems, <laughs> as, <laughs> to put it slightly, yeah. uh, earlier as well, uh, including the same uh, businessman, uh, Hilar Teder, who was, um, I would say, with the plea bargain, uh, is probably the uh, uh, Anglo equivalent of it. I can't uh, exactly remember the German law equivalent of it uh, that exists in Estonia. However, he was uh, basically uh, uh, at the center of another uh, yeah, financial scandal involving Centre and its, uh, let's just say, uh, creative ways of getting funding for election campaigns. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it itself hasn't been, well, uh, at least politically, it hasn't been framed as an issue with Centre. Uh, at least uh, from the case of reform. Uh, the opposition parties, including Centre's former uh, uh, coalition members, have not been that kind, however. Uh, but yeah, the uh, Porto Franco case is really a rather, how should I say, uh, old school uh, form of uh, real estate development meeting political corruption. Basically, the former uh, coalition government consisting of uh, uh, Center uh, Isama and uh, Ekra uh, provided four, uh, 40 million or so uh, loan uh, for the development of Porto Franco, which is a big sort of uh, office space and shopping uh, area in the Time Marina. The issue there was that this 40 million was provided from a fund that was supposed to help uh, businesses uh, hurt by the coronavirus. And it uh, came under a lot of scrutiny, uh, even when it was, well, uh, provided in early autumn, uh, especially after it came out that the businessman who is in the center of the scandal also uh, provided a small uh, legal donation uh, to uh, center after the uh, funding was approved. He himself is not the developer of this project, but his son is. So looking uh, at what's now in place and going forward then, uh, the new government is led by the leader of the Reform Party, which will rule in a coalition with the Centre Party. So the Centre Party isn't completely out of power still. And I thought something that I, um, I know a lot of people will want to have clarified is that the Centre Party and the Reform Party are both members of Renew Europe. So they're both liberal parties, but at the same time, obviously, up until now, the Reform Party has been in opposition to Centre. So how 
how would you differentiate between them? And how would you say that politics in Estonia might change now that the Reform Party is in power rather than centre? It's actually a rather interesting question uh, because both are, as you said, members of Renew Europe. Both are also uh, members of uh, all the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe. Probably the easiest way to describe the differences would be based on economic policy because, as I said before, uh, centre is rather to the left when of the centre, <laughs> ironically, uh, when it comes to economic policy, whilst reform is firmly uh, located on the right. Uh, they were the uh, architects of the uh, recovery from the 2008 uh, financial uh, crisis, as well as the austerity uh, caused by it. So uh, it's uh, rather interesting to see uh, what they will do, because both parties are also very pragmatic when it comes to ruling partners, with uh, both parties uh, having governed with most of the parties in the current parliament, with centre <laughs> completing the uh, uh, tri uh, trifecta with the governing re reform again. So can I just ask, um, because obviously the, there hasn't been a change in, um, in the, the seat allocation in the parliament. So what was it that stopped this sort of grand coalition of sorts from from working after the, the recent election? Well, there are different ideas as to why the coalition in the form. The most obvious and often cited one is that Yuri uh, wanted to continue being prime minister. He wanted power, which is a uh, well, rather reasonable statement. Central was also somewhat startled uh, by the success of uh, Ekra in the previous election, as well as their own um, lack of success. Probably is the kindest way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so that makes sense then that they saw that as, as, a, as a survival thing for, for the Centre Party. So I guess now to move on, obviously, a lot of attention in, in uh, the press and in reporting, and, and rightly so, I guess, is around Kaya Kalas, who's the Prime Minister now. She's the first female Prime Minister of Estonia, and the cabinet that she's um, well, presiding over now is the most uh, sort of gender equal uh, cabinet in Estonian history. And obviously this is coupled with the fact that Estonia also uh, has a female president. So this is uh, turned into this whole moment for gender equality in Estonia. And that's uh, obviously with reporters and political partners and uh, people all over Europe uh, sort of rejoicing around this. And I was just interested to hear um, how that is being talked about in Estonia, uh, how monumental would you say it is, and how much of a change is it from previous cabinets? Previous cabinets-wise, yes, it's a rather monumental change. Um, the Rattas cabinet was um, pretty much the Estonian norm of a few women in the cabinet, but not that many, everything considers. Um, this is, as you said, the cabinet that is the most gender equal. But as it comes to the cabinet itself, um, uh, the response has been rather mixed. It's actually rather difficult to say. Uh, the media itself has been pretty positive, as it has been across the world. Uh, <laughs> as to the opinions of people, I've had 
little ability to converse with others on the topic uh, due to COVID. Uh, but I would argue that the positivity itself has little to do with Caracolas uh, or her government. Although, yes, the female uh, leadership as well as the gender equality angle have helped improve the message. It seems like that the message is more uh, positive because Estonia has sort of returned to normality, returned to the well, uh, situation where reform is in power. <laughs> yeah, and I guess Ekra is not. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the main thing there. Yeah. Reform has largely been seen as, well, the uh, party power, given that it was in power for nearly 17 years uh, up until uh, 2016 when it was toppled. Uh, and it's sort of taken on this mantle of, uh, of, like I said, it's the party of power. It's uh, when you think of government uh, up until 2016 and well, probably going on from now, even sort of in between, you thought of reform and what reform had done because well, they were that, uh, that dominant in that period of time. Cool. Um, thank you so much, Otto, for, for talking this through with us. Uh, as I said, it's um, one of the many sort of thrilling political developments happening in Europe right now. And it's great to get um, your input on it. And I guess now uh, we'll just uh, have to start uh, monitoring how the new cabinet does and how this change will impact um, the support for all these parties we've, uh, we've touched on going forward. Still, two years left uh, to the next election, so let's see uh, what happens between now and then. We might need you to, to come back on the podcast to, to clarify um, another change in coalitions at some point. We'll see. I sure hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, but yeah, thank you, Otto. Great that you had me on. Of course. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. History Corner. My name is Matthew Nicholson, and today we will be going back in time 115 years to an election in my very own country, the UK election of 1906. The world of 1906 was defined by growing industrialisation and the expansion of European colonialism. Both processes centred on the UK, which had entered the 20th century at the heart of the world's largest, wealthiest, and most powerful empire. As Germany and France feuded over the status of Morocco, as Persia underwent a constitutional revolution, and as the first dreadnought warship was completed in Portsmouth, the UK held a parliamentary election between the 12th of January and the 8th of February, 1906. The preceding decades had seen the UK governed by the Conservative Party in a coalition with the Liberal Unionists, in power for 17 of the previous 20 years. Just five years previously, this coalition had seemed unassailable, winning a significant majority in 1900 on the heel of early victories in the Boer War in South Africa. However, these conservative governments, 
led first by the Marquis of Salisbury and then his nephew Arthur Balfour, came under growing strain during their final years. The Boer War had dragged on for two more years, concluding only in 1902 after tens of thousands of British casualties, while the poor quality of military recruits had demonstrated the scale of social deprivation endemic in Britain. An Education Act in 1902 had provoked controversy amongst religious nonconformists, and the harsh conditions faced by Chinese labourers in South Africa, dubbed Chinese slavery, became the subject of growing criticism. The government had also become intensely divided on the question of free trade and tariffs. These factors combined had created a powerful anti-conservative mood in the country. His popularity diminished, Prime Minister Arthur Balfour resigned at the end of 1905, and handed over to a minority liberal administration led by Henry Campbell Bannerman, in a last throw of the dice hoping to force splits within the Liberal Party that might create a path back to power. Campbell Bannerman subsequently asked the King to dissolve Parliament and trigger an election. The question of free trade dominated this election campaign. The UK had championed the principle of free trade since the 1840s, but the growth of foreign competition, particularly from Germany and the United States, had produced growing pressure within the Conservative Party for protectionist measures and a preference for imperial goods within the empire. In 1903, Secretary of State for the Colonies, Joseph Chamberlain, quit the government to campaign for tariffs to protect British and colonial industry. On the other side of the debate, a young MP called Winston Churchill, yes, that Winston Churchill, defected to the Liberals the following year in protest at the party's trend towards protectionism. The Conservative coalition seemed to focus more on fighting amongst itself over free trade than against the Liberals. In contrast, the Liberals, under Campbell Bannerman, presented a united campaign in favour of free trade, arguing effectively that tariffs would increase the domestic price of food, using the image of a Liberal big loaf compared to a Conservative little loaf in its election campaign. The election was also contested by the Irish Parliamentary Party, which campaigned for the restoration of an Irish Parliament and which had won every election in Ireland since 1885, regularly sweeping the entire island with the exception of Ulster in the north. This was also the second election to be contested by the Labour Representation Committee, led by its founder, Scottish coal miner Keir Hardy, which had won two seats and 1.3% of the vote in 1900 on the platform of providing representation for Britain's working classes and trade union movement. Labour had performed well in by-elections throughout the past parliamentary term, spooking the Liberals into negotiating a limited electoral pact, leading to the party standing aside for each other in several dozen seats to prevent the anti-conservative vote from being split between them. A number of smaller left-wing parties also contested the election, including the Independent Labour Party and the Social Democratic Federation and the Workers' Representation Committee. Faced with this choice between free trade or protectionism, the electorate, which at this time still excluded some working-class men and all women, opted for the Liberal policy of continuing free trade. The Liberals won a decisive, if not quite overwhelming, 49% of the popular vote against the Conservative and Liberal Unionists 43%. But translated through Britain's first-past-the-post electoral system, this produced a stunning landslide victory in seats. The Liberal Party more than doubled its parliamentary representation, rising from 183 seats in 1900 to 397. Conservative losses were even more dramatic, as the coalition lost three-fifths of its seats falling to just 156, roughly half the Liberal figure. In a major upset, Arthur Balfour lost his own seat in Manchester, which he had represented since 1885, while a huge portion of the former Conservative cabinet was swept away, with only three of its members remaining in Parliament. Geographically, the Liberal landslide turned the island of Britain yellow. The Liberal Party won all but two seats in Wales, and over 80% of the seats in Scotland 
where the party's share of the popular vote reached 56%. The Liberals expanded their hold on urban England, making particular inroads in London, and also made surprising gains across rural constituencies, leaving only patches of Conservative support. Only a few areas in the southwest of England and the city of Birmingham, home of Joseph Chamberlain, were able to withstand the Liberal tide. In Ireland, the electoral landscape remained relatively unchanged. The Irish Parliamentary Party once again secured the vast majority of seats, increasing its tally by five to return 82 MPs to the UK Parliament. Again, only Ulster remained outside the party's grasp, which continued for the most part to vote Unionist. Due to the scale of the Liberal victory in over in Britain, the Irish Parliamentary Party's significant delegation was unable to hold the balance of power as it had during previous parliaments and previous Liberal governments. Finally, the 1906 election saw the first significant electoral breakthrough for Britain's Labour movement, aided by its pact with the Liberals. Keir Hardy's Labour Representation Committee quadrupled its vote share to 5% and gained an additional 27 seats to join its two existing Members of Parliament, mostly elected from the urban north of England. This would be the first of a number of further breakthroughs for the party in the coming decades. With its first overall majority in 26 years, and the largest ever majority in its modern history, the new Liberal government was in a unique position to implement its agenda. Although slow at first, the elevation of Herbert Asquith to the Premiership in 1908 led to a series of reformist policies. Influenced by a growing strain of social liberalism, dubbed the New Liberalism in the UK, and in reaction to growing awareness of the scale of poverty in the country, this government would implement a range of social programmes. These included old-age pensions, subsidised school meals, tax allowances for families on low incomes, the introduction of labour exchanges and a national health insurance scheme, funded by new and increased taxes on the wealthy. Based on policies previously introduced in Germany, these measures are often credited for laying the foundation of Britain's welfare state. 1906 had proved to be a high point for the Liberal Party's fortunes. The party would be re-elected to form a minority administration after two inconclusive elections in 1910, but never again would the Liberal Party win a majority of seats in the UK Parliament election. The party's pact with Labour played a role in sowing the seeds of their later downfall, providing Labour with a foothold to replace the Liberals as the leading anti-conservative opposition party in the coming decades. And despite suffering a humiliating defeat, this would not be Arthur Balfour's last contribution to British politics. Although he would never again serve as Prime Minister, he returned to Parliament in a by-election just one month after losing his seat, which provided a platform for the continuation of his career. He would go on to serve as First Lord of the Admiralty during the First World War, and then as Britain's Foreign Secretary, in which capacity he became best known to history as the author of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, paving the way for the creation of a Jewish state in Israel. The 1906 election lives on in the British historical memory, up there with other watershed victories, for instance won by the Labour Party in 1945 and 1997. On its centenary in 2006, the election was remembered in a motion put before the UK Parliament by the Liberals' successor party, the Liberal Democrats. This remembered the elected Liberal government as containing some of the great figures of the 20th century, which set the foundations of the modern welfare state worth remembering as one of the great reforming ministries of the UK. With just 62 MPs elected the previous year, it's perhaps not surprising that the party sought to reflect on the last time it had formed a majority administration 100 years previously.
XXX is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. Everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of EuroPlex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. When us election nerds think of elections in 2021, uh, our minds immediately might go to the federal elections in Germany or the Netherlands, uh, maybe regional elections in the UK or Spain. But my guest today is someone who is much more interested in a slightly smaller election. With me today is Dr. Christian Frommelt. He's the director of the Liechtenstein Institute, which was founded in 1986 to study the politics, history, law and economics of Europe's fourth smallest state. Christian, welcome to the EuropeLex podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Fantastic to have you. So for our listeners who aren't avid uh, Liechtenstein politics followers, uh, on the 7th of February, around 20,000 Liechtensteiner will go to the polls to elect all 25 members of the single house of the national parliament, the Landtag. However, despite the excitement of small elections like this for us election nerds, we don't actually have any opinion polls to look at. In fact, there hasn't been a single predictive opinion poll since the 2017 parliamentary election. Christian, why is Liechtenstein like that? Yeah, I think it's uh, very difficult to make uh, opinion polls in Liechtenstein. Uh, first of all, it's very uh, difficult to calculate uh, the yeah, the outcome of election, it's often very close calls. And if I mean, if I say close calls, then I really mean up to 20 votes or, or something like that, you know, because there are so, uh, there's so, such a little, little numbers of voters. And that make, makes it very difficult to predict the outcome of uh, an election. And then it is also in Liechtenstein, the questions that, you know, that we make, uh, uh, the Liechtenstein Institute makes a survey after the election. And it, I think it, people in Liechtenstein are consulted by these surveys. And, you know, if, if you confront them with too many surveys, I think they get, get a bit tired of, of surveys and then they don't participate anymore. So we focus really on the kind of the analysis after the election and not uh, before the election. Another unique thing about Liechtenstein politics uh, that listeners sort of may not know is that the country um, is a member of Schengen, um, it's in monetary union with Switzerland, and is a member of the European free trade area, but is not a member of the EU. Can you just give us a little bit of context, Christian, on how this impacts Liechtenstein politics for being sort of a slightly alternative, very small country in the middle of Europe? I think for a very small country, uh, we have a very active European politics because, you know, uh, you have mentioned we are a member of Schengen, we are a member of the European Free Trade, Free Trade Association, but we are also a member of the European Economic Area. This is quite a, quite a success for Liechtenstein, or it has been quite a big step for Liechtenstein that we joined the European Economic Area in the, in the early 90s, even though Switzerland voted against uh, membership in the European Economic Area. So the European Economic Area um, brings together Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein with the uh, 27 EU members. And this is quite a challenge for us, for our administration to implement all those uh, internal market law from the EU. But we are very happy with, the Europe, with our membership in the European Economic Area so far. It has never been contested. 
But this uh, time and this election, there is uh, for the first time a party which is actually a bit more critical about uh, this membership in the European economic area because they are critical about these high resources that are required for this membership in the, in, in our public administration. And they, they would like to have kind of a, a closer cooperation with Switzerland uh, regarding the European politics. Does that opinion that the EEA is bad or perhaps not ideal for Liechtenstein, does that gain a lot of support amongst Liechtensteiner? I think not. Uh, I think the big majority really sees uh, the EA as a as a success model for Liechtenstein. I think it ensures us uh, free access to the internal market, and this is very important for our economy. And it also gives us kind of a legal security, and there is also kind of a stability uh, that comes with the EA membership. And it's also often seen as a gain of sovereignty. And here we have a different view. For instance, in Norway, the EA membership is criticized regarding a democratic deficit, regarding a loss of sovereignty. Liechtenstein here, the narratives are somehow different because in Liechtenstein, it is seen as a gain of sovereignty because we as a, such a small country are at the same table than much bigger countries like Norway, Iceland, but also we have also kind of a the possibility to somehow shape the EU decision-making. You know, you don't have a vote in the EU decision-making, but we have this decision-shaping and things like that are somehow uh, signs of, uh, yes, we are seen as a, as a, as a full, equal country, a member of, or a member of the, Euro, of the European community, you know, and this is seen as a, as a gain of sovereignty. And that's why EA joins quite a, a high support rate but as I said before, you know, there are this high number of rules that we have to implement. There is an increasing cost, you know, an amount of money that we have to pay in and this drive for certain criticism. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it really gives uh, credence to the idea of, of uh, the various European uh, communities and the European uh, institutions as, as, a, as a small country club. There's a lot of people talk about. So it's a really interesting um, take to get from, from you and Liechtenstein. Listers will be uh, aware that Liechtenstein is, is a constitutional monarchy, one of the few left in, in Europe, um, with the Prince Hans Adam II and his region Alois having significant power in terms of the government of the country. Can you just give us a bit of uh, sort of comparative context of, of how powerful Parliament, the Landtag, is in relationship to the monarchy and the regent? So if you just look at the constitution, then the, the prince is really, really strong in Liechtenstein. So he has, still has this a lot of power. He has a, a veto power and he doesn't have to explain or uh, uh, this kind of veto power. Every law on which the Landtag has voted on has to be signed by the prince. And if the prince doesn't sign it, then it doesn't enter into force. And the, uh, the prince doesn't have to, uh, has to explain his veto. But in practice, you know, all our legislation is strongly inspired by uh, by the EA, by by our co close cooperation with Switzerland, and this is kind of a more or less automatic process. And and the prince is not that much involved. And I think the the driving force actually the government behind the lawmaking in Liechtenstein, the Parliament discussing it, is, is voting on it. But I, I think the main um, main inputs come uh, from from the government. And I think the more interesting question is really the relationship between the parliament and the government and uh, whether this kind of uh, whether, whether the, the balance of power has shifted there over time and here you can really see that the government has 
gain power over the, uh, in, in, in recent years, you know, the, uh, especially also as a result of European integration, as a result of this kind of a higher rule density, uh, because, you know, we have a parliament which, is, which, are, which only includes 25 uh, members, and all of them, you know, they do that just as in a, in a milieu system, in a, as a part-time job. And uh, the government, its body of the, of the public administration, uh, they have grown a lot over the recent time, and so they just have more resources and, and bring in more expertise. And the, the parliament is really struggling with that. What's interesting as well about Liechtenstein's constitutional system is that the, the government is, is indirectly elected by uh, the parliament. So uh, for listeners, the, the Landtag comes together and elects uh, the five members of, of the government. Now, can you just explain um, for our listeners, this is obviously designed as a system to sort of encourage cooperation. We obviously talk about political parties and um, the sort of uh, politicization and, and the sort of um, ideological differences that drive politics in most European countries. Can you just just help us understand how this uh, sort of spirit of collegiality impacts Liechtenstein politics as a whole? So the idea is that we have uh, the prince as, as our head of state and um, that's why we don't have vote uh, directly for a head of state. So I think this the head of the state is the prince then we have the parliament, which is elected directly by the people, and the parliament then uh, votes uh, for the for the for the government. And the government needs a majority in the parliament. And I think this is not that unusual. And I think this is also something which works pretty fine. And uh, the idea is a bit of, of Liechtenstein that we have this kind of uh, um, for, for quite a long time actually there was only a only two parties represented in the parliament and both of them were also represented in the government and uh, so uh, there was actually no party competition on it because in, in, a, in a small country like Liechtenstein the focus is really on efficient procedures and effective implementation this is very important and this is something which is behind this kind of consensus culture that we that is typical for Liechtenstein so even though there are some there are some increasing differences between the parties, but still the main two major parties, the Patriotic Union and the Progressive Citizen Party, they have somehow the same ideology behind. And uh, this is very important uh, for the stability of, of our political system that they work uh, good together. And uh, as an expert, actually, and also as a, as, a, as a inhabitant, I often would wish that we have more debate, that we have more, uh, also more fight, actually, on political ideas. But you hardly have that in Liechtenstein. And even the, the increasing opposition that we have since the last election, since last election, we, we, got, we have now three parties uh, in, 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 the, in the parliament, uh, on the, uh, which are not represented in the government. And they still often vote with the government in, in, in the parliament. So I think that you, uh, there is an increasing opposition, but it's still very common that the opposition votes with the, uh, with the government because it's just kind of this yeah, expression of this political culture which is determined by a, by a strong consensus. And I think this can be explained with the, with the smallness. 
You heard it here first, folks. It's the first on a podcast, someone wishing for more politics in their country and not less. So yeah, you mentioned the, the, the patriotic union of the centre-right and the incumbent government, oh, sorry, the incumbent prime minister, um, Thomas Banser of the, the FBP, um, a conservative right-wing party. So the FBP has nine seats and the patriotic union has eight seats in the Landtag at the moment. But as you say, that there are you know, parties in the ascendancy of, of, of opposition parties, so to speak, in the ascendancy. Are we expecting a serious shake-up of the hegemony of, of the Patriotic Union and the FBP, who've, who've governed for over a century? No, I don't think that, that there will be a, a dramatic shake-up. I think uh, uh, they will have to fight to, uh, to get the same share of votes again. And I, I'm not so convinced that they will achieve that. I think the opposition might win um, more votes, but it will be difficult whether they will have also win more seats in Parliament. Because, you know, in, in Liechtenstein, uh, we have a very high threshold from uh, its percent uh, and countrywide, actually. So we have two constituencies in Liechtenstein, but the threshold is applied for the entire country. So you really have to uh, run for, for Parliament in both constituencies to somehow overcome this high threshold. And I think one of these um, party running for parliament now will struggle with uh, the threshold. And I think this ind the independent party, which had a, had a huge success in the last election, which gained uh, five seats uh, in the last election, but then uh, has been divided uh, during, the, uh, during, this, uh, during the last uh, period of parliament into two parties. So now we have the independent and the Democrats pro Liechtenstein. And I guess the Democrats pro Liechtenstein, they will come into the parliament and uh, the independent, they will not succeed and uh, they will not uh, come over the threshold. And because they will not uh, come uh, into parliament, I don't think that the two big parties will lose seats. Obviously, here on this podcast, we've talked a lot in the past about the importance of thresholds and um, those parties just on the sort of the brink that those thresholds and as you said before with such a small country it could really be a matter of a few votes as to whether um, the independent party or um, the Liechtenstein Democrats get into um, the the next parliament. Now we mentioned at the top of the podcast about uh, Estonia getting a new prime minister and and the head of government there being a woman for the first time. Now, so Liechtenstein is one of the countries or a decreasing number of countries in Europe that hasn't had a female head of government, actually has quite a low uh, representation of women in the Liechtenstein parliament. Why do you think it is that Liechtenstein has underrepresented women in the past in the national parliament? I think here we really have to distinguish between the government and, uh, and the parliament. In the government, I think this election will bring a uh, will be a turning point, you know. Uh, here, uh, it looks like the progress, progressive citizen parties will win the election, and with that, uh, there will be the f uh, a female prime minister. And I also think, and this is quite sure now, that there will be a majority of women in the new government. I think there is, it is already clear that uh, the patriotic union and the progressive citizen parties that they will form again an, um, a coalition. And both of them are running for, for government or running for parliament now with, uh, with a majority of, of women in, in this team. So I think this is a clear sign that there will be a, 
a female, female majority in the next government. Regarding parliament, I think it's completely different. Uh, here it's, 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 it was dramatic and very, very sad actually also that uh, the last time uh, the women lost uh, quite a lot of seats. So the share of women in the parliament was only 12%. So there were only three women represented in the parliament after the last election. And this was actually the lowest number for years. And uh, it has changed now a bit because there has been some elections in, in the communities where, where, where women had, had got a, a quite a big success uh, two years ago. And also that there has been a lot of uh, the parties have invested a lot to somehow motivate women to candidate and run for parliament. Nevertheless, I'm not so optimistic that there will be a much higher share of women represented in the next parliament. Because in Liechtenstein, the success rate is the highest of people who have already been elected into the parliament once. So people who, who candidate again, you know, they have a very high chance to be re-elected. And this gives a system somehow kind of a makes it difficult to, to bring in big changes. And that's why I also think that even in the next parliament, that although there has been a lot, people, uh, parties have invested a lot in uh, motivating women to, uh, to, to run for parliament, that, you know, that they have voted, uh, the motivated the voters to vote for women, especially, that there will be not that men women represented in parliament. The challenge of Liechtenstein is that we don't have uh, you know, that we don't have fixed list. So every candidate that is um, listed on a, on a on a list of a party has the equal chances to to get elected. So uh, people or the, the parties cannot push someone, and that's why that uh, the, the people who are uh, the, the members of parliament in Liechtenstein. You know they, they 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 don't represent much of the of the population actually. You know we don't have any candidates currently that are younger than thirty, because you know it doesn't make sense to candidate for parliament if you are younger than thirty because you get never elected, and uh, the, so the, there's no interest at all. So we we all parties have youth party groups. But none of those youth members of those youth party groups is a candidate for for parliamentary election, and also uh, with women, you know, the parties can nominate women, but they cannot push them, and this is quite a challenge to to bring uh, to bring in changes in the systems, and uh, that's why that might explain why uh, our parliament is dominated uh, by men um, at the age of fifty. That's really interesting. Um, and the, you know, this podcast, again, it's one of our favorite topics to talk about is the impact impact of the electoral system on their eventual sort of demographic makeup and the, the turnout of how the um, eventual election results will turn out. And, and yeah, that's one really interesting part about having a really pure open list system is that um, the parties lose control um, in that. And then obviously, there's a big debate about um, whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. But that's a really interesting take. And I think we'll finish there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Christian. It's just been really interesting. Um, and we'll all be watching the elections uh, on the 7th really, really interestedly, I think now, after this fascinating discussion. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to the UFLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at europelex.eu um, and at europelex across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at europe underscore lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris, and Guillaume Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. Cool. Coolio, coolio. Bellissimo. <laughs>